Welcome to the Holy Conundrums podcast, where we talk about church problems and sensible solutions. Got a really hot button topic today that I'm excited to talk about. We're going to talk about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, something that we have been praying for in the church for a long time. I'm joined today by a, a wonderful guest. His name is David B. Wright. He is the founder and former CEO of 40 Days for Life. David, welcome. Thanks for being with us oh, today. It is wonderful to be with you, Everett. I've been looking forward to this, and I love the name of your show. Holy conundrums, Batman. <laughs> yeah, it's a play. I was like, I'm terrible at titling things. That's why uh, my wife named the kids. But but there's <laughs> we landed on holy conundrums. It was like, hey, it's a play on holy communion. It works. Anyway, so Roe versus Wade was overturned. That's huge news. Praise God. Uh, mm-hmm. Praise God. I know that there's a potential that there could be listeners listening that are not happy about the decision. I want to address that as well. But first, tell us a little bit about 40 Days for Life and about what started your work with them and what led to the movement and a little bit about what 40 Days does. Oh, gosh, that's a big loaded question. Yeah, it is so, a loaded question. Well, and, and honestly, it kind of addresses that point you made about some listeners who may not immediately feel great about the overturn of Roe. I was one of these people that was very passive about the issue of abortion. I didn't think it affected me. I didn't really have a say in it. I didn't think that I really, as a guy, was supposed to have a voice in this. But what really changed was when Planned Parenthood announced it was building an abortion clinic in the town where I used to live, and that was the town of College Station, Texas. And my wife had grown up in a Catholic pro-life family in Corpus Christi, Texas. They had gone out and prayed outside of abortion facilities. And she said, David, we need to do something. If abortion ends a child's life, if it harms a mother, we need to try to do something about this challenge. And so she dragged me reluctantly to go and pray outside of the facility while it was being built and to a church meeting when the community organized around this. And I was very reluctant. I didn't think I had any skills, anything to offer, but I just kept having this kind of still small voice that was saying, you have a role, you have a role. And so I began to take what I would call baby steps. I began to volunteer a little bit here and there. I began to pray. I began to say, what other alternatives can we offer? If we're saying we don't think abortion is a good thing, what positive solutions can we provide for women? How can we help to assist them in the midst of pregnancy and then after a child is born? And so a local group was formed in response to Planned Parenthood coming, and that group was called the Coalition for Life. Young church secretary, she was working at St. Mary's Catholic Center across from Texas A&M, and she started the group. And my wife and I got drawn in very early on to volunteer and then serve on the board of that group. But as we saw the Planned Parenthood open, as we began to hear the stories of not only the abortion numbers, children dying, but also we began to hear stories of women who had been detrimentally affected by their abortion experience. It really deepened my conviction because I had always heard that abortion was supposed to empower women. And yet I was hearing stories of women who had been emotionally harmed, spiritually harmed, but some physically harmed as well. And I realized this isn't all equating. And so we just began to get more and more involved in this organization. And in 2001, I finally felt convicted. I was working in the pharmaceutical industry and I quit my job to jump in full-time working in pro-life and ended up, Lauren, that church secretary who was running the coalition asked me to serve as the executive director. So I ran that group for a few years felt completely inept. I didn't have any skills. I didn't know what to do or how to do it. So we did everything wrong a few times and then eventually started figuring out our way. But really the turning point that brings us to the question you asked is in the summer of 2004, I went into our office and it was me and three of the staffers who worked for me. And we got together around our wooden conference table in the middle of the office. And we just said, the abortion numbers are going up and we feel that we're not doing enough. What do we do? 
And out of that sense of frustration and heartbreak, we said, we need to pray because we don't know the answer. And we should have done that years earlier, but (laughs) we prayed for one hour around that table. And that was when God gave us the conviction that became 40 Days for Life. So the three things that we felt led to do for a 40-day period, of course, a very spiritually significant time frame. but the three activities were number one, prayer and fasting. Because ending abortion, stopping Planned Parenthood, this big multi-billion dollar corporation, it seems impossible, but we know that with God, all things are possible. That's why we pray. And also we fast because in scripture, we're told that some demons can only be driven out through prayer and fasting. So that was our first thing. The second thing as we prayed, we felt led to do was to go and gather in the public right of way outside of Planned Parenthood to hold a, a 24 hour a day prayer vigil to bear witness to the injustice that was happening, to ask God to come and be present in that place, but also to be a visible presence to offer help and hope to a mother who might be going in feeling she had no choice. And we saw many turnarounds as a result of that. And the third and final thing, so prayer and fasting, the peaceful vigil, the third was community outreach. And we had a team of college students that agreed to go door to door to every household in our college town and invite people to pray and fast and be a part of this campaign. So we finished our hour of prayer and Everett, I wish I could tell you, I was just jumping up and down excited. I was terrified because I didn't know if we could pull this off and I didn't know if it would work. But realizing that children were at risk, women were at risk, we said, we've got to at least try. And so two weeks from that day, we kicked off the first 40 Days for Life campaign. A thousand people participated and abortions dropped in our community by 28% that year. So to God be the glory. And then after that, we thought that was it. We thought it was a one and done kind of an experience. Whew, you know, did that check off the bucket list. But we got a call from people in Dallas and they said, well, we feel we need to do this. So we coached them through and they did it. And it went really well. Then some people in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and then Houston, Texas, and then Kitsap County, Washington, and Charlotte, North Carolina. And one by one, these other cities started saying, we want to do this. And they did a campaign. And in every case, lots of people got involved. Lives were saved. Hearts and minds were changed. And so we finally realized God's up to something. What if we actually aligned ourselves, joined him in this work? And so in 2007, we set up the first national 40 Days for Life, thinking that maybe what a dozen cities would join together. And 89 cities participated in that first national effort across 33 states. And then it grew and grew and spread internationally. And fast forward to today, and 40 Days for Life has spread all around the world, all 50 states, hundreds and hundreds of cities, 60 nations. There have been more than a million people who have participated in these campaigns. And more than 21,000 lives that we know of have been spared from abortions because people showed up and offered help and hope and were willing to put their faith into action. We've now seen over 200 abortion workers who've had changes of heart and left the abortion industry. Of course, Abby Johnson is the most famous of those, the subject of the book and movie Unplanned. She was the director of that Planned Parenthood facility outside of which we did the first 40 Days for Life. And then the third thing was we never expected that we would see over 130 abortion facilities close their doors and go out of business for good. So it really was evidence that God hears our prayers, answers our prayers. It's a highly contentious, controversial issue. If we approach it with compassion, and if we show up bringing light into the midst of the darkness, and if we're willing to be the hands and feet of Christ, we can collectively make not only a life-saving difference, but an eternal impact on the lives of the people we encounter. I think what I really love about the story, it starts with a handful of people around a a table saying, let's pray. What does God (laughs) want? 
and taking a leap of faith, like Peter taking stepping out of the boat and, and walking on water. It's like, yeah, you got to, in order to do something that is impossible and amazing, you got to take the first step. And that's all you guys did. And then look at the fruitfulness of it. It's amazing. And at no point did it involve shouting people down. At no point did it involve heckling people or, or being vile and, and volatile, throwing gasoline on the fire. It involved prayer, it involved peacefulness, and it involved a desire to both serve the child and serve women in terms of support. Amen. And that's why I was like, I want to get David on the show because there's something about 40 Days for Life that is, one, really amazing in terms of results, but two, is not the way a pro-life advocate is portrayed in the media, perhaps. I know that I have seen, and there's a question coming at this point, but I've seen recently over social media, I've been following and listening to people who are very upset and they will say, and I saw somebody post, I accompanied my girlfriend for an abortion and the hecklers were just shouting us down. And like those people are, I know for me, like I've never experienced praying outside of an abortion clinic. I know they've been there in Denver where I live, the people who shout people down, but I've never seen those people. But what is generally the response I guess I should say in terms of what's the typical around the country, because you probably have a pulse on this, the typical protest, prayer, vigil response outside of an abortion clinic these days. Yes, I am still seeing it. There is certainly a level of hostility and volatility that is accentuated because of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. And it doesn't help any that the media has hyped it up to make it sound like the Supreme Court universally banned abortion, which of course is not the case. All they did is threw the decision back to us, the American people in the states through our elected officials and in Congress. But as a result of that, there's a lot of pregnancy centers that are being vandalized. People who are praying at abortion facilities are experiencing more screaming, threats, things being thrown at them. So I do encourage those who go to be more cautious, particularly I like to encourage men. We're told to sit on the sidelines. It's a woman's issue, even though most of the abortionists are men. But this is a time for men to live up our role as protectors and providers and to go and be there to help keep the peace. But also, this is a time if somebody does struggle with anger over the issue of abortion, and I'm even talking on the pro-life side, this may not be the time to go out and pray outside an abortion facility. Because if somebody comes and confronts you in anger, if you can't respond with love, you could actually be doing harm. If I can use one illustration of this, in Manassas, Virginia, I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and Manassas was the closest abortion facility where my family would go and pray during the 40 Days for Life campaigns. And the guy who signed up to start 40 Days for Life in Manassas, a guy named Ken, great guy, But when he first started leading 40 Days for Life, even though one of the things that we had instituted from the very beginning is every participant signs a statement of peace because we wanted to make sure it was very clear. If you won't sign that, you're not part of 40 Days for Life. This is meant to be a spiritual effort. This is meant to be a non-confrontational effort. And so Ken agreed to that. But when he went out there, he found himself getting very angry. And particularly one day, the abortionist was walking into the facility and it was an abortion day. And somebody pointed this out to Ken and Ken got really upset and he yelled out at him something along the lines of, you know, going in to kill babies, how could you? And he said it struck him that the abortionist ran faster into the abortion facility. And so over the next few days, as he was wrestling with this internal anger, he realized I'm actually hindering what we're trying to do out there. 
So he went to his parish, he went to his pastor, the priest, and he explained the situation. And the pastor said, it sounds to me like you need to spend some time in adoration on your knees and ask Jesus to work on your heart before you go back out there. So other people ran the campaign for those next few days, weeks. And finally, Ken realized in his heart, I need to go out and I need to love. I need to not hate, I need to not confront, I need to love. And so he began to, even though it was hard, look at the abortionists and say, there but for the grace of God go I, and how can I love this man, hopefully, to leave what he does? So he began to greet him in the morning, just cheerfully. He began to ask him questions like, how are you today? And he knew that this doctor also did abortions, uh, did um, deliveries at a local hospital. So he would talk to them about the positive as he was walking in, not about the abortions. And over time, they kind of forged this little strange relationship across the fence. Well, one day, Ken and his group were outside and they were praying a divine mercy chaplet. And the abortionist came running out of the building and he came over to them and he said, I hear your prayers. Are those Catholic prayers? And they said, well, yes, we're praying the divine mercy chaplet. And he said, I kind of thought so. He said, I used to be Catholic. And he said, yeah, I left the church a long time ago. And Ken, in his new found, I'm going to try to love, said, would you be open to meeting with my pastor, the priest? And the abortionist said, I would. So the next couple of weeks, they tried to schedule an appointment. It didn't seem like it was going to work. And finally, the appointment happened. The abortionist went and met with Ken's pastor, and he never went back and did another abortion. He quit the abortion business. And so months later, this abortion facility without an abortionist, and they were struggling on some other fronts, it ended up going out of business and the local Christians bought the building and turned it into a pregnancy center. <laughs> but when the building closed, they asked me to come up for the rally to thank God for closing this place down. And so Ken's telling the story of all this outside of the closed abortion facility that this former abortionist used to work at. And while he's there, his phone buzzes, he pulls it out. And it's a message from this former abortionist and he says, I just wanted you to thank everyone who's there for loving me, for praying for me, and helping me to leave the abortion industry. Never quit doing what you're doing. And that's the approach we've got to have. Yes, there are contentious issues. Yes, there are people who are mad. On our high school and college campuses, there's going to be confrontation. But we have to, to the best of our ability, spend time with Jesus. In adoration is a great place to do it. Get our hearts right, and then respond the best we can with the love of Christ and help people. I think the reason, Everett, that we're seeing such a flare-up right now is because there's so many people who've been wounded by abortion. So many people who've had abortions and not found healing and forgiveness. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. And those who have been through the pain of an abortion are still many times have not found healing and forgiveness. And that's why the gift of reconciliation is such an important gift. But we need to understand that those who've not yet found healing, that's a wound. And so can we approach them as a wounded person in need of healing? Though our sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And can we extend the love that Jesus Christ extended to sinners when he walked this earth in love? Yes, we have to confront sin for what it is, but can we extend love and invite people to find healing and invite them either to return to or to begin a relationship with Jesus? I always tell people when it comes to, and this is true in evangelization, it's true in any kind of contentious conversation that you might be having, the goal is not to prove that you're right when you get into a conversation with somebody, particularly if they disagree with you. The goal is conversion of heart. And it just shows the example. It's like, look what happened when Ken turned his attention more to the conversion of heart of the abortionist rather than trying to shut him down with a message that's true. Like, hurry up and go kill more. I mean, you're killing babies. That's a true statement, but that's not going to convert hearts. That's right. And so, you know, the moment his heart changed to let me 
try to get, I mean, it, ultimately it, it started with prayer. It led to a conversation. And then once he started to get to know a little bit about his, his abortionist, found out he's a former Catholic, would you like to talk to my pastor? When you hear a little bit of their story, you say, okay, now I know where to minister. And there's a huge power a power in that in terms of just in terms of what the Lord can do when you know where to minister. We'll put it that way. Let's talk. I want to, <laughs> there's so many things we could, we could talk about. Uh, let's talk post the Dobbs decision, a post real world. What happens in the church now? Cause as you mentioned, abortion's not banned and uh, we still have a long way to go. I mean, I frequently will say like the goal for the pro-life movement is to make abortion unthinkable. And we've got a long way to go to get there. I know that you mentioned in our pre-interview that you had a meeting with a bunch of leaders in the pro-life movement, but what's our attention right now in this moment? Yeah. Well, let me let me mention that meeting and then I'll, I'll give you some thoughts on particularly for those of us in the church, what can we do and how should we do it? Right after the Dobbs decision, I had a handful of national leaders who reached out to me and they said, David, you're no longer, you're not running an individual organization. You're kind of this agent that helps all pro-life organizations and leaders. Could you possibly coordinate a public unified response to this decision where we present a positive public view of the whole movement moving forward? And so we organized within just a few days an event and we called it Life Beyond Row. And we set up a website, lifebeyondrow.com. And in 48 hours, it grew into this monstrosity where we had 43 organization leaders each give three-minute messages about what just happened and where we need to go from here. It is the most hope-filled 43 leaders. It's a two-and-a-half-hour event. You can break it up, and it's all broken into chapters. So if you just want to hear Father Mike Schmitz or if you just want to hear uh, Lila Rose or Abby Johnson, you can go to those. But what it does is it helps you to see the breadth of the movement and realize we're all called to different places. There are some who are meant to be in the political and the legislative. There are others who are meant to be in the care provision, pregnancy centers, maternity ministries. There are some meant to be in education and advocacy and students for life and those sorts of things. But what it will do, if you go to lifebeyondrow.com, you can watch the whole video. You can access all this, it will give you hope and it will really help you to see that our work is not done. So instead of one kind of federal battleground overturning Roe, we now have 50 quote unquote battlegrounds because every state, things are going to look different. You're going to have some states like Texas and Florida and Mississippi where there's going to be largely restrictions or prohibitions on abortion. That still doesn't mean abortion is over in those states because people will try to leave the state or they'll try to order abortion pills. So there's still a huge ministry need there. But then you have states kind of in the middle like Michigan that had pro-life laws on the books. They were blocked by a judge. Planned Parenthood's paying $10 million to get hundreds of thousands of signatures to put on the ballot this fall, a constitutional amendment to enshrine abortion. And polling at the moment looks like they could prevail in that. So it's like everything's up for grabs. And then you've got states like California. You've got states like Massachusetts. I was earlier today on a call with about 20 leaders of organizations in Massachusetts, and they have it actually harder right now because their government is trying to become sanctuary, quote unquote, states where they'll actually use tax dollars to, like in California, make it an abortion destination where they're going to bring people in. They could have a five to tenfold increase in abortions in California because of Gavin Newsom's desire to become an abortion destination. So, the key thing is for us to realize with all these different battlegrounds or these different fronts, let's not call them battlegrounds because we don't want to sound contentious, we're going to have to approach this differently in each place, different strategies for different situations. But there's one universal thing, and I think this is where the church's role comes in. We are going to need to love like we've never loved before. Pregnant mothers are going to feel 
scared like they've never felt before. Where do I go? What do I do? The whole world's pressuring me saying I should have an abortion. I don't even know if I can get one right now. That woman is being pulled in so many different directions. And we, as the church, need to come alongside her with compassion, with love, with practical, tangible support in ways we've never done before. Right now, we've got just shy of 3,000 pregnancy resource centers across America. We need five to 10 times that number. We have a few hundred maternity ministries. We need many, many more maternity ministries. So we need to come alongside the mother. And then we also need to show compassion for the child, not only during the time that she or he is in the womb, but then once that child is born, are we willing to walk with that mother and child in the messiness of reality? So my wife works part-time at a maternity ministry here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and she is a parent-child coordinator. And what that means is she mentors these moms and they were homeless before they were pregnant. And so they come to this maternity. We have five houses in Fredericksburg and we're able to house up to 17 women and their children. I'm on the board of directors. It's an amazing ministry, nationally renowned. They do great work. They've been featured at the March for Life. But when I've gotten to know through my wife having these relationships, these mothers, they come from the most horrific circumstances that I've never experienced. Everett, you probably have never experienced. The person listening has probably never experienced extreme physical abuse, sexual abuse, addictions, drugs. One young lady, her mother, when she was four years old, her mother was trying to hide drugs as a police raid was happening. And so she injected all these drugs into her daughter's leg to get rid of the evidence. I mean, these are the kind of situations that are horrific. And so these women, thankfully, are willing to embrace life and not choose abortion, but there's a lot of mess. There's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of challenges. And so are we willing to walk with them through that? Are we willing to financially support and provide practical assistance? Are we willing to help them finish their educations? Are we willing to help them with jobs? And what my wife is seeing is most of these young women have never seen an intact family. They've never had a father or mother or either figure in their life. They need from the church, they need examples. They need mentors. They need people to love them and help them. So if I were to say, where does the church have a role? And I know the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is, has an initiative. They're in the process of rolling out through their pro-life activities. It's that. It's standing alongside mothers and children like never before. And then for each of us individually to look at, you know, go to lifebeyondroad.com and look through all the different aspects of the movement and say, here's a place where I have gifts and talents to offer, and then getting involved in deploying those gifts and talents. But all of those things together are going to be needed now more than ever before. I think, oh gosh, so many things you said I don't want to respond to. I know that, again, reading the day of, I was on vacation and didn't have good Wi-Fi the day that the decision came down. And I was like frantically trying to get the news just because I wanted to see, I was like, there's going to be a lot of stuff that is said in the next few days and, and weeks and months, et cetera. And just reading some of the responses and reactions, and you could go on social media and find a whole bunch. Uh, there's a lot of fear. There was a lot of anger. There was certainly among Christians, a lot of celebration. We've been praying for this for a long time and working towards it. And one of the things I noticed was the level of misinformation that was being spread among those who were angry. The things that were being said, like now women aren't going to be able to get care for ectopic pregnancies and miscarriages, and think, which is like, that's totally wrong and total BS. Or, you know, the pro-lifers, they don't care about children at all. Or, or just like the lack of understanding of just the judicial process and what was actually decided and how it's actually going back to the people. I mean, the statements that are being made. It really amazed me how naive people were in terms of and how much they believe the, what has been fed to them for the last 30, 40, 50 years. If anything, I would say 
Dobbs leveled the playing field that now all of a sudden forever, I know being a pro-lifer, it has felt like if you try to have the conversation, you just get shut down. And now you can't help but have a conversation. The dialogue is open because every state is renegotiating and discerning their laws on abortion. So now it's like we're ripe for conversation and dialogue and discussion on abortion. How do we, I should say, what do you see out there in terms of people's responses, in terms of fear and anger and perhaps misinformation? Uh, What's some of the most common three things you see that perhaps we need to respond to? Mm, That's a great question. One quick thought before I answer those three. I would say, Everett, this is why you taking a step of faith to start Holy Conundrums is so important because we each can have a voice to share with people important messages about our faith and about these issues. We no longer are bound to the traditional gatekeepers. And so I just want to thank you for having a willingness to say, hey, let's talk about these things. Let's have this conversation that maybe you won't have in the Washington Post or the New York Times. So a few of the things, I'll tell you the one that I think right now seems to be spreading most rapidly and most dangerously is the false information about pregnancy centers. Just a few days ago, Elizabeth Warren, U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, was saying that these dangerous centers with their deceptive practices that try to steer women away from their abortion decision outnumber abortion facilities three to one, and we need to shut all of these places down. And that's dangerous language because there's a reason there's more than three to one pregnancy centers to abortion facilities, and it's because People of faith are willing to put that faith into action. And whereas every abortion center charges people for every service they walk through the door for, these pregnancy centers provide all of this care for free. So millions and millions and millions of dollars of services being provided because people are willing to put their faith into action. And these pregnancy centers have unbelievable approval ratings, 98, 99% approval ratings from those who've been through their services. And to attack them because Elizabeth Warren is campaign is bankrolled by Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry, a competitive threat. So, you know, again, it's those types of things. And that's why we're seeing it's that reckless language that contributes. I'm not saying causes, but it contributes to an environment where we see people spray painting and throwing bricks through windows of pregnancy centers and vandalizing them and harassing them and telling them you're not safe and the Jane's Revenge type groups. So I think it's important that we get the truth out. If you've not been to the nearest pregnancy center, find out what it is in your town. Look it up. It may be affiliated with Heartbeat International or CareNet or NIFLA. Those are the three kind of big organizing groups. Go on their websites to find the nearest one to you. Go get to know them, learn about their services, and champion it in your parish, in your community, in your neighborhood, because we have to counter that misinformation by sharing the truth. And I don't think we do it in a confrontive way like, you said this, you're wrong, but instead just share the good. Let people find out the good these pregnancy centers are doing. And I think it's going to be absolutely a monumental moment. The reason I was on this call with these 20 leaders from Massachusetts is they're experiencing tremendous attacks on their pregnancy centers right now. And the way they're approaching it is they're saying, well, if we got all these people criticizing us, it gives us a window to respond. And we got to do it in a positive Christ-like way and say, here's the good we do rather than that's not the bad that you say we do. And so I'm excited. I think it's going to give them a window of opportunity. So that's probably the one that's at the forefront of my mind. A couple of other quick ones, the extreme cases, the rapes, the ectopic pregnancies, and these horrific situations that occasionally do happen. And it's important for us to have compassion 
in those situations and not sound like we don't care, but also to recognize that, like, for example, in the case of rape or incest, to kill an innocent victim of somebody else's crime is not the solution. Two wrongs don't make a right. Or in the case of ectopic pregnancy, I mean, these have been blown way out of control of what actually happens and what life-saving measures are for a mother. And sometimes in a situation where a life is lost while trying to save the life of a mother, that is not a procured abortion with the intent to kill a child. So again, these are the kinds of things people are saying. I would say whatever you hear, I kind of think of it like ever the Holy Spirit opens up doors. So let's say you hear a news story and you hear something and you're like, I don't believe that. That seems wrong about this issue. Go and research it. Go to a trusted source. Go to somewhere. Go to Holy Conundrums or go to the Life Beyond Row webcast and find the answers. And then you start sharing those answers positively in your parish because that's how we can change hearts and minds. And if you can light a fire of hope and compassion in your parish, that parish can then be a light in the community to help those who are in a time of need, who are facing difficult situations or when they are angry and they see love is the response to their anger. I think that's going to win some people over. It may take years, but those seeds will be planted that can bear fruit down the road. In my parish, my pastor released just a a wonderful statement. In it, he said, first off and foremost, thank you to everyone who has been praying for this for decades and for all of your work, and because rejoice, and, and this is all because of your work and because of the work of the Lord. And then he said, second, for those of you who may be, this isn't welcome news, that you're suffering, you're afraid, and let's be honest, some of those people are in our pews. It's everyone's along their own journey. Not everyone who walks in the door of a church is going to be pro-life, and even though God is pro-life, they're along their journey and finding him. So he said, we don't rejoice in your suffering, is what he said. Please come to us, come to our staff, dialogue with us, discuss. We want to hold your hand and be with you even in your grieving, even if we don't agree with you. And then the third thing he said is, he's like, basically, the summary of it was, if you are suffering from a crisis pregnancy or abuse or anything, we can provide you everything. And just in, in my area, in the Denver area, he listed off all the different things that all the different ministries that are connected with each other, that we can get you prenatal care, postnatal care for free. We can get you adoption services if you choose to go that route. We can get you diapers and we can get you hooked up with the Sisters of Life who'll be your best friend for the next 20 years. Like we we can get you, we have homes for those who are, who are victims of sex trafficking. If you're a victim of domestic abuse, if you just don't have a home, we can hook you up. I mean, it was just like the list of things that were provided just within our Catholic circle in our own area. I mean, he was like, we can get you everything for free. So it was a brilliant statement to send out to the parish. And I don't know what the response has been, but just to be able to see that kind of a response, I was like, amen. I'm proud to see that kind of a response in my local church. Yeah. And Everett, speaking of your local church, I also want to give a shout out. Archbishop Aquila is a champion for life and has been for a long time. I first met him and got to know him when he was the Bishop of Fargo, North Dakota. And he actually was the first Catholic bishop to publicly endorse and promote 40 Days for Life, and that garnered national Catholic media attention, and that really gave us a boost we never expected. But what he actually talks about is that when he was young, he witnessed the aftermath of an abortion. I think he was in either medical school or undergrad, and he saw aborted children in jars and was just devastated and recognized the humanity in that. So he has always, as a shepherd, been a great leader of encouraging the church 
in whatever diocese he's in, Fargo now, Archdiocese of Denver, to really provide that help and support. When he first was installed as the Archbishop in Denver, I got a call from the Respect Life office and they said, Archbishop Aquila wants to really ramp up the 40 Days for Life campaigns because he feels this is the approach. There are some confrontational things that go on at the abortion facilities here in Denver and he wants to show this is the positive way to do it. And so we worked and helped to get that uh, moving along. But I think for all of us, you don't have to be an archbishop. You don't have to have a podcast like Everett, but find the way that you can bring light into this darkness. One day, we're going to all be accountable to God for what we did and didn't do for the great challenges and issues of our day. And this is an issue that all of us can have some role in. You don't have to go start up a 40 Days for Life and you don't have to go, you know, be a member of the clergy, although if God's calling you, you better say yes. Um, (laughs) But you do have to find a way to help somebody in need that God puts in your path. And the four most important words that we can say, and this, I was at a Students for Life conference years ago. The Sisters of Life were there. It was an amazing event. And a speaker was talking about a study that at that point had just been released where they surveyed post-abortive women. And they found that 78 out of 100 post-abortive women said if one person in their life had said four words, I will help you, they would not have had the abortion. I will help you. And so that's exactly what you're saying, Everett, is when we encounter somebody, whether it's one of our children's friends, whether it's one of our own children, whether it's somebody in our parish, when we encounter somebody experiencing an an unexpected pregnancy, are we willing to say, I will help you and then actually do it? And if we do that, we can transform this issue and we can make a difference not only in our parish, in our communities, but across our nation. Since you're the uh, founder of 40 Days for Life and you mentioned Archbishop Aquila, I'll tell you a quick, amazing story. And you're right, Archbishop Aquila is very outspoken and has very much made the issue of life a priority in the Archdiocese of Denver. We have the third largest abortion clinic in the country in Denver, uh, Planned Parenthood Clinic, and they do everything there. And we constantly have people outside praying. Somebody pointed out a couple of years ago, that, you know, Google Maps will take pictures. I don't know if they do it. I think they probably do it by satellite or different things, but they take pictures of every building. So if you type in a location by Google Maps, a picture comes up of that building and they update those periodically. And they said, hey, everybody type in the address to the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Denver. And they did. And lo and behold, what did you see? You saw the building where you could find it. And in front of that building was a Eucharistic procession of huge group of people because they just happened to take the picture where they were doing a Eucharistic procession around the abortion clinic. And I know they regularly pray masses outside the clinic, et cetera. And so people, if they were searching for the clinic, they would have actually seen a picture of Jesus come up on their screen. And that was most likely a 40 Days for Life initiative. So anyway, I thought you might appreciate that that, That is amazing. And that's awesome. And, you know, the other thing too is even if they don't recognize Jesus in that image, Mm -hmm. when people are outside of these facilities, when Abby Johnson had her conversion and left the abortion industry, she shared with me that the last National Planned Parenthood Conference she had been at as employee of the year and a director of an abortion facility, Planned Parenthood reported that when people are praying outside of their facilities and sidewalk counseling, they see a 75% no-show rate. So just even somebody seeing that picture, even if they don't recognize Jesus in it, hopefully they will, but if they don't, they may go, whoa, I'm not going to go there. And that may have saved a life. So those people who went that day didn't even know that Google Earth was going to be capturing that image, but that could have had a life-saving impact for somebody who was looking to go have an abortion. So you never know the ways that God can use each of us. Yep. 
Amen to that. All right, David, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, David B. Wright, where can people find it? Well, David B. Wright, is a, he helps now with strategic planning for all kinds of different ministries, founder of 40 Days for Life. Where can people find you? And you also mentioned the website. What was the website that you had mentioned yeah. during the show? Lifebeyondro.com, and that's lifebeyondroe.com. And that's where you can find that marathon event with all the different speakers. It's amazing, inspiring. Hope you love it. To find me on social media, my name is... Oh, mispronounced German word. It's David B-E-R-E-I-T. And if you want also, I am in the process of setting up a website at davidbright.com. So David B-E-R-E-I-T.com. And uh, so feel free to check that out and look forward to connecting more. And Everett, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you for scheduling and doing this and also just for your heart to help us unpack the issues that the church is facing today in a beautiful, compassionate way and for sending these messages out so that we can equip and empower future saints. Thank you so much for being on the show, David, and for saying yes. I greatly appreciate it. You bet. 